Welcome to Script Bits, a show for writers, film buffs, and everyone in between. Each episode, we take a closer look at one section of a great screenplay and find out what it can teach us about storytelling. This week, we'll be checking out a beautiful, life-affirming sequence from that poem of a script, Moonlight. I'm Bruff Hansen, and this is Script Bits. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Script Bits. Happy belated New Year to you all. I hope you are having a great start to your 2021. A lot is going on over here in Script Bits land. Your intrepid host has written, directed, and produced a couple of short films coming out later in the year, both of which I am very excited about. I'll tell you, nothing will teach you about screenwriting more than actually making a movie out of your words. This new path does mean that the bits will be coming out less regularly, But if you stay tuned, I will get you a brand new bit with some fresh insights as often as I can. You know the drill. First, I'm going to give you some background about the script bit for the day, read the section out loud, and then talk about some of the lessons it has to share. Today, you are in for a treat. The script bit of the hour is from the mind-bendingly poetic screenplay for Moonlight. The screenplay is by Barry Jenkins and Terrell Alvin McCraney, adapted from the play by McCraney. It won an Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. Now, the movie tracks the development of a young, queer, black man named Chiron through three chapters of his life, and the events that lead him from being a sensitive, bullied kid in Miami to a hardened drug dealer in Atlanta. Today's bit begins near the top of page 72 with the location... Interior Black's Apartment Bedroom. Black is the adult name of our main character, Chiron. This scene involves a phone call with his old friend Kevin. Now, growing up, Chiron faced many obstacles. He struggled with his sexuality, his peers bullied him, and his mother fell victim to drug addiction. In high school, he has his first sexual experience with Kevin, but not long after that, A bully named Terrell peer pressures Kevin into beating up Chiron in front of everyone. Chiron takes revenge, but not against Kevin. Instead, he assaults Terrell with a chair, using such violence that he is led away from the school in handcuffs. The next time we meet Chiron, he has become Black, a hardened drug dealer with gold front teeth who cruises the streets of Atlanta, rap music blaring. This scene is the first time that Chiron and Kevin speak after that falling out in high school. Now this bit is a little bit longer than our usual selections. I'm going to read and talk about the first half, and then we'll get into the second half toward the end. Alright, let's begin. Interior, Black's apartment, bedroom, night. And it's as though he never left. Flat on his back above the covers, staring up into nothing. The phone there on the bedside. An extended beat of quiet here, enough to see that this is a man who wrestles with his mind at night, then. The phone buzzes again, Black reaching for it instinctively, grabs it without bothering to see who it is, and Black. Ma, it's late, I'm trying to sleep, I got your message. Beat. We can hear the other side of this connection. For now, it's just the white noise of dead air. Whomever's on the other end, keeping to themselves, then... Voice, off-screen, through phone. Hello? Black pulls his phone from his ear, 
checks the display. It's a 305 number, Miami. His demeanor shifting at the realization. Voice off screen. Hey, Black, I mean, Chiron, man. Black slowly sits up, just up on his elbows there. Brings his chest up a bit. Voice off screen. How you doing, this... this Kevin? Kevin. Black's face startling, though only so much. Such a contained man. Kevin, off screen. You there? Say something, nigga. Black, yeah, and... Hey. Kevin, off screen. Long time no see, right? I asked Teresa if she still had your number and... I'm working this job, man. A lot of people coming by and this dude... He come by today. Made me think of you. Beat. Kevin. Off screen. You there? Black. Yeah, I'm here. Kevin. Off screen. You remember me? Black looking about himself. Around this room before answering. Looks more into his memory than anything else. Yes, he remembers him. Black. Yeah, I do. Been a while. Kevin. Off screen. Yeah. It has. And, where you at? Black closes his eyes. Black. Georgia. Atlanta. Been up here ever since, Kevin. Yeah, that's what I heard. Beat. A very long, very dense, very quiet beat. Kevin, off screen. I'm... I'm sorry about that. About all that, Chiron. And... After a long pause. About all that shit went down, man. Black looking about himself. About the room. Eyes wandering and drifting. Had pushed so much of this away. Kevin, off screen. Real shit, dog. I am. A sound from Black into the phone. Not so much a word as a gesture. Guttural. Ambiguous. Not affirming, but a reprieve. An allowance for the space to continue. Finally. Mercifully. Kevin. What you doing up there? Black. Coming back. Not much. And. Just trouble. I will confess to you now that I consider Moonlight to be not only a masterful script, but perhaps the best screenplay and movie of the 21st century. Every now and then, I encounter a piece of art that is so subtle, so deep, and so pristinely crafted that I find it almost impossible to extract any insights worthy of what it's already achieved. Moonlight is such a masterpiece. But I gave it a shot anyway. I'm going to frame our discussion around three ideas. Physicality, shamanic soul contracts, spooky, and the piece's narrative scale. As screenwriters, it's important to always ask ourselves, how prescriptive can we be when giving specific physical directions for characters on the page? When is it necessary to include an action in the script, and when should behavior be left to the actor or director? Let's see how Moonlight tackles this problem. Black answers the phone, and through it he hears a voice say hello. Then, Black pulls his phone from his ear, checks the display. It's a 305 number, Miami. His demeanor shifting at the realization. Voice off screen. Hey, Black, I mean, 
Chiron, man. Black slowly sits up, just up to his elbows there, bringing his chest up a bit. Voice off screen. How you doing? This... This Kevin. Kevin. Black's face startling, though only so much. Such a contained man. Kevin, off screen. You there? Say something, nigga. Black. Yeah. And... Hey. Kevin, off screen. Long time no see, right? I asked Teresa if she had your number and... I'm working this job, man. A lot of people coming by and this dude, he come by today. Made me think of you. Beat. Kevin, off screen. You there? Black. Yeah, I'm here. Kevin. You remember me? Black looking about himself, around this room before answering. Looks more into his memory than anything else. Yes, he remembers him. Black. Yeah, I do. Been a while. Kevin, off screen. Yeah, it has. And, where you at? Black closes his eyes. In novels, writers have a chance to plug their audience into their characters' minds. We read their very thoughts and have a front row seat to their fears, hopes, desires, and regrets. In a screenplay, we aren't typically privy to a character's interior life. There are some exceptions. If a screenwriter chooses to share her character's thoughts through voiceover or flashback, for example. However, most of the time, screenwriters must indicate what their characters are experiencing inside by showing us what's happening to them on the outside. Before getting into the physicality of this scene, it's important to point out that Jenkins and McCraney have already set themselves up for success. We have already seen, with our own eyes, the trajectory of Black's, a.k.a. Chiron's, life. We have borne witness to his journey from being a shy and sensitive queer kid, bullied every day, to a hardened drug dealer with gold teeth fronts. We know that the person Black has become is not actually who he is. And in screenplays, as in life, whenever there's a disconnect between who someone seems to be and who they actually are, that person automatically becomes interesting. So even before the scene begins, the audience is leaning forward in its seats, burning with curiosity to see what this complex and tragic man will do next. In this section, Black receives a phone call from Kevin, his first love and the man who also betrayed him, an event which ultimately led to Black's drastic change in character, this is a high-stakes conversation. Notice, though, that the screenplay doesn't get ahead of itself. At first, Black doesn't know who's calling. Then he begins to realize it, and finally has a profound emotional reaction to the fact. And each of those moments, from epiphany to heartache, can be seen in Black's behavior. After Black sees that it's a Miami number, his demeanor shifts. After Kevin says his old nickname, which is, ironically, Black, a moniker that only Kevin used, Black sits up on his elbows and brings his chest up. After Kevin reveals who he is, Black's face startles. After some more awkward conversation, Kevin asks where Black is now, and Black closes his eyes. It's often said 
that 90% of human communication is body language, and this is no less true in film. In movies, you can create subtext by showing us thoughts and emotions through the language of the body. The brilliancy of this sequence is that each of Black's physical movements are triggered by an emotional reaction. Black's thoughts and feelings change as the conversation goes on, but since we can't live inside Black's head, Jenkins finds a way to show us that evolution through Black's behavior. His outward physicality transforms according to his private thoughts. To me, the most moving moment of physical action is the simple direction. Black closes his eyes. This line shows a total understanding of physicality as it relates to thought and feeling. Why does he close his eyes in this moment? It's a way to cope with long-suppressed pain. We close our eyes when we're feeling too much, so much that we might cry and wish to stem the tears. Or perhaps it's an unconscious social gesture, as if by closing our eyes we can conceal our feelings from others, or maybe from ourselves. Much is made in certain forms of psychotherapy and meditation about the physical manifestation of emotions. For example, many people will feel a burning sensation in their guts when they're angry or their neck will tighten when stressed. Knowing such principles will help you select truthful actions for your characters based on their emotions and bodily sensations. You are writing within a two-dimensional medium, but you're creating three-dimensional human beings. Every word they utter or hear, every event of their life, will lead to an emotion that can, sometimes, take on a physical expression. I will add an important caveat. Artful physicality requires a light touch. Remember, Black doesn't cry, he just closes his eyes. Be judicious in your use of such directions by finding moments that will help actors embody the moment rather than tie their hands to a rigid performance. Poorly employed physical directions are those that have nothing to do with character or plot. The next topic I want to cover is called shamanic soul contracts. What a phrase, huh? Shamanic soul contracts. Before we get into what I mean by that, let's jump into the text. Kevin, where are you at? Black closes his eyes. Black. Georgia. Atlanta. Been up here ever since. Kevin, off screen. Yeah, that's what I heard. Beat. A very long, very dense, very quiet beat. Kevin, off screen. I'm... I'm sorry about that. About all that, Chiron. And, after a pause, about all that shit went down, man. Black, looking about himself, about the room, eyes wandering and drifting, had pushed so much of this away. Kevin, off screen. Real shit, dog. I am. A sound from Black into the phone, not so much a word as a gesture. Guttural. Ambiguous. Not affirming, but a reprieve. An allowance for the space to continue. 
Finally, mercifully. Kevin. What you doing up there? Black, coming back. Not much. And. Just trouble. This section is about the proverbial elephant in the room. The fact that Kevin, after hooking up with Black in high school, then gets peer pressured into beating him up in front of everyone. There is a lot to be said about the text itself, including its use of physical reactions as we discussed in the first section. But I want to talk about the event behind the freighted pauses and guarded language. That is, the backstory. And one useful framework for thinking about backstory that I have found is this idea of a shamanic soul contract. A shaman, as you might know, is a figure found in many different cultures who is said to commune and communicate with the spiritual realm. Neo-shamanism is a version of this practice in modern form. Many Westerners and others now seek the counsel of trained shamans for guidance. I am not an expert in this movement, nor these practices. But one idea that I've stumbled upon in the current iteration of shamanism is this notion of a soul contract. The idea goes something like this. Let's say there's a man who's thinking about taking a job with a new startup. He'd lose his steady paycheck and benefits, but he believes that the product will be a success and wants to get in on the ground floor. The problem is that he's too scared to commit. One day, he goes to his local shaman, who hears his problem, then takes him on a vision quest or journey into his past. There, the man rediscovers a memory of his when, one winter, his brother pestered him into walking out onto a frozen lake. The lake's surface broke, the man fell into the frigid water and almost died. With the help of the shaman, the man discovers that this event is the real reason that he's afraid of risking a change in jobs. This is because, after his experience in the lake, he figuratively signed an unconscious soul contract that reads, In exchange for my safety, I will not take unnecessary risks. The truth now revealed, the man breaks free of this contract and starts his new career. Soul contracts focus on the central decision a person made that determined who they are. In movies, characters are often the victims of some tragic occurrence in their past. There are many examples of great characters whose personality is forged from an event that was out of their control. In Citizen Kane, for example, the young child Kane has no choice but to part ways with his parents and his beloved sled, Rosebud. But the benefit of writing a backstory with a soul contract is that it takes the character's past one step further, to the level of choice and identity. The tragic occurrence is just as important as its aftermath on the character's psyche. That is, how the character chooses to respond, and how that choice determines who they become. This moment in Moonlight, when Kevin apologizes to Chiron, is so profound because the audience knows the soul contract that the adolescent Chiron made in order to become the drug dealer named Black. Chiron signed the contract 
when he took violent revenge on the bully. At that moment, he chose a new path for his life and elected to become, in the vernacular of the movie, hard. Chiron's soul contract might read, in exchange for not being hurt ever again, I will become hard. Kevin apologizes about his betrayal, and Black confronts not only a painful memory, but the very reason he is who he is today. Kevin's re-emergence into Black's life challenges his false identity, threatening to dismantle the contract Black made with himself, and in effect, putting Black to another choice. Does he renew the contract and go on pretending to be invulnerable? Or will he break the contract, soften his heart, and learn to love as his true self? As you can see, a soul contract will also help you plot the widest possible breadth for your character's emotional arcs. In the end, Black finally disavows his contract, and we witness a man who turned himself into a criminal and thug melt with vulnerability into the arms of his first love. Now that's storytelling. It's challenging to describe what makes a truly poetic piece of writing, well, poetic. In drama, it can help to begin by asking, what is the story's scale? I'm now going to read the second half of today's bit so I can show you what I mean. Kevin, what you doing up there? Black, coming back. Not much, and just trouble. Cut to. Interior, Jimmy's East Side Diner, night, same. Simple this place. Kevin, late 20s now, dressed in a chef's apron behind a staging station, from the looks of the kitchen surrounding him, a diner-type place, short-order cook. Kevin, Chiron and Trouble always found a way. Out beyond the staging station Kevin's lean-to, an old-school register, tan-colored tabletops, and matching vintage booths. This is one of those relics that will always be a part of Miami. When the tide finally sweeps the city into the Atlantic, the la last note rising from it will be Company Segundo's Chan-Chan reverberating from this place. Intercut Black and Kevin. Black. Yeah, something like that. What about you? Kevin. I'm a cook, man. A loud laugh from Black. The clear joy of it a jolt. Black. You a cook? Kevin. Yeah, man. Got sent up for some stupid shit. Same stupid shit we always get sent up for. Put me on the kitchen line and I kinda took to it. Black. Great day. Kevin Jones. Chef Boyardee. Kevin. I cook better than that shit. Black. You better, or your ass won't be cooking long. Feel me? The two of them laughing there. The familiarity clear, asserting itself. Kevin. Yeah, so... I just thought about you, man. There's a jukebox in here. Folks come in and play they songs, and that's the music we get in here. This dude, man. Kevin trailing off there. Thoughts wandering. Eyes drifting over to that jukebox one of the old-school types with actual CDs and pages that flip when commanded. Black. Yeah. Kevin, this dude reminded me of you. Beat. 
Black, what do you play? A long pause from Kevin, the song wedging itself in his thoughts right now, pushing everything aside. Black, that good, huh? Kevin, yeah, that good. And, if you ever come down here, man, you holla at me. Black, this your number? Kevin, nah, no cell. This the diner. Right now it's better if folks can't reach me. I tell niggas, call my mama's house if you really need me. Otherwise, I'm only about this J-O-B. Black. True. What's the name of the place? Kevin. Jimmy's East Side Diner. If you ever come to town, Chiron, I mean it. Come on by. I'll cook you something. Play that song for you. Black fully sat up on the bed now. Free hand to his temple. The other clutching his cell to his ear. Just the sound of his light breathing. Kevin. All right, Chiron. Be easy. Click. Black lowering his phone now, staring at the screen. The simple information there. Call duration, 5 minutes, 29 seconds. A lifetime. To better help you understand what I mean by a story's scale, let's take a crash course in the history of drama. For most of Western history, scripts, in the form of plays, were about gods, kings, warriors, and aristocrats, their problems in love, their battles with nature and the supernatural, and their internecine struggles for power. Then, right around the turn of the 20th century, playwrights like Ibsen, Chekhov, and Strindberg began writing stories with a revolutionary new thesis— that the lives and loves and struggles of everyday people matter, and that their stories are important to tell. We now take this point of view for granted. We still enjoy our myths and epics. Marvel movies, for example, are basically stories about gods. But a huge portion of our dramatic diet, from television to indie movies, exists because of this once radical idea that stories can be about anybody. Of course, stories about anybody has typically meant stories about mostly white people who are mostly wealthy, but that's a conversation for another episode. The point I want to make is that as drama and poetry descended from the grand and epic to the everyday and commonplace, its scale shrank too. The given stakes in a marriage between two royals is much larger than the given stakes in a marriage between folks like you and me. Dramas about the immortal and the powerful conclude with shattered worlds and shaken empires, whereas dramas about the everyman and everywoman conclude with narrow, localized, and interpersonal change. This doesn't mean that the stakes are low. From the perspective of Black, his entire life is at stake. It's simply that his creators have painted the old, narrative tropes of fate, fortune, downfall, and heroism onto a much smaller canvas. In this bit, we find two men with two very different lives. One is a hardened drug dealer in Atlanta, the other, a former convict now making a life for himself as the owner of a diner. 
Let's plug this scenario into a classical way of thinking about drama. Aristotle tells us that the best tragedies include a change in fortune. So, if a character begins as a prince, by the end he should be a pauper. And the reverse is also true. If she starts out wealthy and powerful, the story should lead to her downfall and ruin. Moonlight traffics in this idea, but the changes in fortune are less extreme. We're not dealing with the masters of the universe, whose every decision could change life on Earth as we know it. We're dealing with people whose lives broadly resemble most of ours, in that they're marked by a few indelible events. Kevin and Black's fortunes do diverge, and they each land at very different places in their lives, but their fates have no material impact on their societies, only on their own lives and identities. Kevin is at ease with his sexuality and self, while Black struggles every day to be someone he's not. We, meanwhile, are the privileged observers of this otherwise invisible tale. This small-scale quality trickles down to every dramatic unit of Moonlight, from its plot to its every moment. The script must therefore concern itself with events and actions that are to scale. Voice, expression, emotion. This is the language of individuals, the language of Moonlight, and they are prevalent throughout this scene. The movie is a microcosm of the human experience, not the cosmos itself. We don't watch Chiron's sexuality and life develop from above, in lofty prose. The script, the camera, our viewpoint, stay right on his face, hands, torso. We track breath, glimpses, silent wounds. Our stage does not include sprawling battlefields, but street corners and diners and rooms, locales small enough that we can feel their barometric pressure, their history, their mass. The authors tell us about Kevin's Diner, this is one of those relics that will always be a part of Miami, its jukebox still playing as it swallowed into the Atlantic. Anton de Saint-Exupéry wrote that, that which is essential is invisible. What McCraney and Jenkins have sculpted here is the invisible, the love between these men as it unfurls across a lifetime. The parting thought that I offer you is this. Find the story nearest to your heart, the quiet one that only you can tell. It may seem inconsequential in the grand theatrics of this life, but as I hope I've demonstrated, it's the humble stories that are the most human of all and worthy of our attention. Thanks for listening to this episode of Script Bits. I'd like to thank Graham Webster for composing our music. If you're into politics and looking for a new podcast, I want to recommend a great show by a personal friend of mine called Pages Against the Machine. The podcast supplements the hilarious and subversive Instagram account of the same name, and I highly recommend you check it out. 
For updates and the latest episodes, please follow us on Twitter at ScriptBitsShow or find our website, ScriptBitsPodcast.com. And you can always reach out to me personally at bruff at scriptbitspodcast.com. That's B-R-O-U-G-H at scriptbitspodcast.com. Hit me up with your thoughts on this episode or anything else, and I'll discuss them at the beginning of our next show. Let's keep the dialogue going. My name is Bruff Hansen, and this is Script Bits.